Let's get straight to the point. You want to grow your portfolio to deal with the rising cost of inflation to pay off your debt or your mortgage, pretty much anything standing in the way of you and financial freedom, right? Well, with Yahoo Finance, you can get access to the news, data, and tools that you need in order to help you reach that financial freedom. And when it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. And now you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses. Yahoo Finance. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination. That's yahoofinance.com. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Ship show. Well, all three of the U.S. stock market indexes are ringing in the new year with new record highs. The market was up on the first trading day of the year, up again today. NASDAQ composite is the star, uh, 7,065 today, up another 0.84%. New record high in the NASDAQ. Same thing with the S&P and the Dow. In fact, the Dow is now almost at 25,000. We closed at 24,922. Uh, so under 100 points away now from Dow 25,000. Of course, everybody is ignoring, though, the economic reality. You know, look at the price of oil. I've been talking about oil prices going up on this podcast up again today. 61.77 is the close, up a dollar 40. We were up yesterday. This is the highest I think oil has closed in over 2 years. And if we get above 62.75, which is less than a dollar away, that would be the highest closed in oil since December of 2014. But it was all between July of 2014 and December that oil prices collapsed from above $100 a barrel to down below 40 And so I think once we get above uh, 63 for example, I think we got clear sailing up to 80 to to $100 oil. And I think we can do that this year. I mean, nobody is talking about what this implies for the U.S. economy because this is a gigantic tax hike. For consumers, you know, if you end up doubling the price of oil, if oil goes from $40 a barrel up to 80 over a two-year period, that's going to have a major impact on the cost of everything. And of course, it's not just energy costs. Commodities in general are strong. Uh, they were strong yesterday. We're getting moves up. You know, gold was up 15 bucks to begin the year, first trading day of the year. We were down about four or five bucks today. So we gave back some of the gains, but not all the gains. So gold is off to a good start. Gold stocks, some of them were very, very strong uh, yesterday. Again, giving back a little strength today. But across the board, 
the resource sector is going up. And in fact, the ironic thing, we got the release of the Federal Open Market Committee minutes today. And in fact, as soon as the minutes came out, gold actually sold off. I mean, gold went to down about nine or 10 bucks uh, from down about two bucks before the minutes were released. And then it clawed its way back to, you know, finish down a little bit on the day about where it was or uh, maybe a little bit more down from before the minutes came out. But if you look at those minutes, the only concerns that the FOMC members expressed about inflation was that it was still too low, right? They're worried that inflation expectations are still too low, that the public or investors still don't expect enough inflation, which just shows you how clueless investors are or the public is. Because if they don't think there's going to be inflation, they're wrong. Those expectations are totally wrong. People are ignoring what is going on in the currency markets, what's going on in the commodities markets, what's going on in the bond markets. All of this stuff is flashing inflation, at least the way you measure it, right? Consumer prices, producer prices, they're all going to be going up. And the Fed is still worried that they're not going up fast enough that they're not going to hit their 2% goal. They're going to hit that out of the park. They're going to be looking at 2% in the rearview mirror, in the distant rearview mirror. That is going to be the big story. They're going to way overshoot, and they're not going to be able to do anything about it. You know, I keep hearing people talking about how, well, if the Fed is raising rates, oh, it's a good thing because it means the economy is strong. But what if it's not a strong economy? What if it's rising inflation? That is really the impetus for rate hikes. That is not... Uh, a good situation to be in, especially when you know you have so much debt, when the economy is this vulnerable to an increase in interest rates. And by the way, all of this talk about all this economic growth, again, it's not going to happen. You know, I'm watching a lot of interviews with Art Laffer uh, on uh, on television. He's on Fox a lot now, and I mean, I haven't seen Art Laffer this excited and this enthusiastic about the economy since 2006. I mean, one of my uh, famous uh, debates that I had back when they still had me on uh, CNBC, I was on Larry Kudlow's show, and I did this debate. Kudlow was uh, out, so they had a guest host. But I did this famous debate with Art Laffer where he bet me a penny, where he said everything was great and there was nothing to worry about. Of course, this is right before the, the financial crisis. And Art is just as enthusiastic now. See, anytime there's a tax cut, Art Laffer thinks this is fantastic. Right, the economy is going to boom just because we cut taxes. Look, Art Laffer did not understand the structural problems that were underlying the U.S. economy before the 08 financial crisis. That's why he was so optimistic. He was just looking at tax cuts under Bush and not looking at anything else. Right. He's making the same mistake now. Right. He, he is still just looking at the tax cuts in a vacuum. Oh, tax cuts are good. I'm a supply sider. This helps the economy. And he doesn't understand the structural problems that exist today that are actually bigger than the ones that he didn't recognize in 2006. The only difference is Art Laffer still gets invited on television, not me. Right? I, I really wish I could be on with him so I could debate him just so I could have that material. Because the next time I'm proven right, and, and I am going to be proven right. I'm not going to have all this great footage or no one's going to have this great footage to make a, you know, real Peter Schiff was right video number two or number three, whatever, because they never have me on. I mean, what was so good about that original Peter Schiff was right. It was all this, uh, it was what everybody else was saying. Not so much, you know, what I was saying, 
but how everybody else responded to it. I wish I could get on television with Art Laffer again so he could tell me how ridiculous this is and how crazy I am and how foolish this is. Although, obviously, he can't bet me another penny because he welched on the first bet. So I can't really take any bets with Art Laffer because if he loses, he, he doesn't pay. Uh, but I wish I could get on with him. But unfortunately, nobody will have me on. But it really just shows you that the mainstream media at this point really wants to silence uh, my whole my whole perspective. But obviously, I'm able to get it out on my podcast. I'm you know I'm on the internet talking about what's going to happen. So Art Laffer and all these guys can be out there. Everything is great because it's all partisan, right? Because there's a Republican president. See, Art was very negative when when Obama was president. Or, oh, he was very negative on everything. Now all of a sudden, everything is great just because we have a Republican president who's cutting taxes, and of course he's like, this is you know the, all he thinks that needs to be done. But the reality is. We are in worse economic shape now. This is a bigger bubble. There are more structural problems underlying the economy than there were in 2006. Now, all the things that I don't know is, I don't know if we still have another couple of years. Remember, when I was arguing with Art Laffer in 2006 about the crisis that was coming, we were still two years away from the crisis. So we could still be a couple of years away from the crisis, but that does not mean there is not an incredible money-making opportunity between now and the crisis. And I think that opportunity is only going to get better when we have the crisis because the next crisis is a currency crisis. It's not a, a mortgage crisis. It is a dollar crisis. That is the only place that we are headed. In fact, this is the exact crisis that I have been uh, forecasting since the very beginning because it is the byproduct of the monetary mistakes that I knew the Federal Reserve was going to make in the aftermath of the 08 financial crisis to reflate or attempt to reflate the stock market bubbles and the housing bubbles that they had created but that had popped. What I didn't understand back then was that they would not only attempt to reflate the bubbles, they would succeed. They would succeed beyond uh, my wildest imaginations on how successful they would be. So they have inflated the mother of all bubbles. And when the air comes out, or in order to prevent the air from coming out, they have to crash the dollar. And that is what is going on. In fact, the dollar had a had a weak day on the first trading day of the year. Uh, it was up a little bit today, uh, but still down You know, from yesterday. But I think the chart looks horrible for the dollar. More important... Not just the dollar versus the euro, but I think the big deal is going to be the dollar versus the Chinese yuan. And when the dollar breaks new all-time record lows against the yuan, which I believe is going to happen sometime in 2018, that is a very, very big deal. But with rising commodity prices, a falling dollar, it is an inflation story. It is not a growth story. And a lot of this growth, as I mentioned in the last podcast, a lot of it is uh, natural disaster related, uh, whether it's hurricanes, fires, floods. And speaking of disasters, you know, I, I was supposed to fly to Puerto Rico tomorrow and there is a snowstorm coming to the northeast. This is apparently going to be a big storm and they canceled my flight. So I am stuck here in the polar vortex uh, for the next four days because the next flight I could get to Puerto Rico isn't until Tuesday of next week. So instead of being on the beach in 80 degree weather, I'm going to be, you know, shoveling snow in uh, frigid weather. We have very, very cold weather in New England. It's supposed to get a lot colder over the weekend. I was supposed to miss that. 
and now I'm going to be right in the thick of it. But, you know, this is probably going to be used as some kind of excuse now if we do get some weaker economic data, right, in the first quarter. <laughs> this is They're going to blame it on this. Oh, it's the weather. It's this cold weather. But a lot of the better data that we got was also weather-related. I think it had to do with these disasters and, again, having to do with the optimism, the false optimism. Just like consumers don't expect any inflation, they're wrong there. They're, they're, they're wrong on the optimism about economic growth or things like that. In fact, I read um, you know another article today. This was from a study from, uh, I think, Kaufman and uh, Broad about um, closures. I mean, they're looking for massive uh, retail closures in 2018, much, much bigger than what we had in 2017, which was probably a record. And now we're going to beat that record in 2018. But as uh, consumer optimism is met with reality, right? The growth is not going to be there, uh, but the inflation will, right? That's not what people expect. That's the opposite of what people expect. You know, also, I'm reading more and more stories now about how the states are going to be looking to get out from under the changes in the new tax bill. And this is exactly, this is exactly what I was saying on this podcast. Nobody, nobody was talking about this but me. I mean, I remember I didn't read a single article about any of this stuff, but I was talking about it for months. But now that the the bills have been passed, there's talk. Now, maybe one of the reasons that the states didn't want to bring it up is they wanted to make sure that the Republicans didn't actually put something in their bill to prevent it, uh, because that would have screwed them up. But now that they've already passed the tax bill, it's going to be hard to pass another one, right? So what the states are doing is they're looking at doing what I said, right? Changing their income taxes to a payroll tax on employers rather than a income tax on employees. And that would do an end run around the SALT limitations and deprive the government of all that revenue, that extra revenue that they thought they were going to get, which means even bigger deficits than the ones that they forecast or the ones that they admitted. And of course, they were being you know overly optimistic anyway. But something else I hadn't even thought of, which is very smart. I hadn't even thought about this, and I read about it. What states are also looking at doing is setting up charitable entities where individual taxpayers can make charitable donations and then get a tax credit for 100% of the value of that donation against their state income tax. So let's say I owe $100,000 in income taxes to the state of Connecticut. Instead of paying that $100,000 obligation... I give $100,000 to a charity, and that charity basically gives all that money to the state of Connecticut, right? Now, I take a $100,000 deduction against my state income taxes on my state return, so I don't owe any more money. I paid the $100,000 to a charity. The state of Connecticut still gets the money because the charity just takes the money and gives it to the state of Connecticut. But now, when I itemize my deductions, my charitable deductions are still in place. So now I take a $100,000 deduction for my charitable donation, which is the same deduction I would have made if I paid $100,000 in, in state income taxes or property taxes. So the the state is the same, but now the federal government doesn't get all the extra revenue that they were counting on. This is what's going on. And so this is going to be, these are going to be some big bombshells that are going to be going off in uh, 2018 about blowing a bigger hole in the deficit than the hole they've already already blown in it. And then, of course, when we're not going to get the economic growth that everybody thinks because we're going to be way down with higher uh, 
oil costs. I mean, this is going to be a big story. Wait till they start talking about the tax hike. This is like a giant tax hike on the consumer. The money's all going down uh, the, the gas tank. But at the, the uh, grocery store prices going up, insurance costs going up. You know, one aspect, too, of the Tax Cut and Jobs Act that I hadn't even really spent much time thinking about, but then I read an article on it, and, you know, the, the guy hit the nail right on the head. And I was reading these articles about the minimum wage hikes because there are a lot of states and cities that increased their minimum wage, again, um, the first of the year. And one of the things about this uh, bill is that it allows you to write off 100% of the cost of your equipment in the year that you buy the equipment, as opposed to having to depreciate it over a longer period of time. Now, what this does is it, in, it lowers the cost of an employer to automate, right, to buy a machine. And this is going to create bigger incentives for employers to cut jobs. In fact, instead of the tax cut uh, bill, it should be the job cut bill, right? Because this, this plan encourages employers to fire workers, especially lower skilled workers. And he, here's the reason. So the cost of paying my low skilled workers is going up because of the minimum wage hikes are up, right? So it now costs me more money as an employer to keep paying human beings. But the trade-off is, well, humans compete with machines because instead of having a human being, I can buy a machine. I can get computers or robots to do the work. Now, the, the cost-benefit analysis is what is it going to cost me to pay these wages and salaries and benefits and all those other costs versus the cost of the machine? And that's generally the upfront cost of buying it. And then you've got some maybe maintenance costs along the way. But the big cost is the money you have to lay out. Now, before this tax bill, company lay out money that they, you know, they, they can only take a, a, a write-off for a portion of their out-of-pocket costs. But now, with 100% expensing, you could write off the entire investment in computers and machines the year you make it. That really tilts the cost-benefit analysis because you get a much bigger benefit by firing your workers and replacing them with computers or machines or robots or whatever because you get your tax breaks all in the first year instead of having to spread it out over many years. And so this is going to cause even more employers to uh, make that substitution, make that trade uh, labor for capital. This particular bill. So it actually encourages employers to fire people, especially in the wake of these additional increases in uh, in the minimum wage. And also, remember, for corporations, right, when you have a 35% tax rate, that means that, you know, you only pay 65% of the, their costs because 35% of it was going to be taxed, right? Because it's an expense. When you when you're a corporation and you hire workers, it's the after-tax cost uh, that is important. Well, when you lower the the tax to 21%, well, now that after-tax cost has changed because now I'm in a lower tax bracket. Instead of the government absorbing 35% of my payroll, they're only paying 21%. Or put another way, if I fire people the return on firing them is even higher because if I increase my profits by firing people, 
Now I get to keep more of those profits than I would have kept had I fired them before. So you increase the profits that employers make by firing people and you increase the incentive to do that by allowing them to write off 100% of the cost of the equipment necessary to make the shift uh, from labor to capital. So I think you're going to see a lot of employers actually doing that uh, in the next several years. And, you know, with all these mineral weight hikes, that's going to be, you know, a lot of layoffs that are coming um, that nobody is talking about. I mean, people are still obsessed about how low unemployment is, you know, and that's what the Fed is still, the Fed is thinking, oh, you know, what would happen if unemployment keeps going down? You know, this whole Phillips curve, they've been worried, well, you know, all the low unemployment, is that going to cause inflation? And now they're saying, well, no, we, it doesn't seem like it's going to because unemployment is so low. The irony is that both unemployment and inflation are going to rise at the same time. And that is what is going to confound the Fed. And it's going to confound all these experts. Because then what do they do? Right. If unemployment is starting to rise at the same time that inflation is starting to rise, what does the Fed do? Right. Because if the Fed starts raising rates to fight inflation, then according to its own, you know, orthodoxy, it's also going to hurt uh, the job market. It's going to create more unemployment because of the higher rates, because they're tightening uh, financial conditions. And according to them, that's going to uh, cause a pickup in unemployment. So how are they going to do that? You know, how are they going to fight rising unemployment and rising inflation at the same time. It's like you can't step on the gas and the brake at the same time and you know and, and expect the, the, the car to do anything. So they're really going to have no power. And I've been saying all along, I think the Fed is going to say to hell with inflation. Right? What they care about is unemployment or also trying to maintain uh, the bubbles, especially, you know, when, when uh, you know, Trump is now basically embrace the stock market bubble. He's bet his presidency on the stock market bubble and on this economy that they now own. They're going to need the Federal Reserve to do everything it can to pump it up. And they're, you know, they're not going to care. They're going to downplay. They're going to dismiss inflation. But you know what's going to come back uh, in uh, 2020? I think the election in 2020, the misery index, I said this before, um, but it's going to be back. What is the misery index? It's inflation interest rates and unemployment, right? All those things are going to be going up, right? The Fed might be trying to keep interest rates down and maybe they'll even cut rates on the short end, but I don't know if they'll be able to control the long end unless unless the Fed actually targets long-term interest rates, which they may do, right? The Fed may say, we're going to draw a line in the sand. We're not going to let the 10-year yield go above 3%. But if they do that, if they draw that line, that is just going to accelerate the inevitable dollar crisis. It'll happen that much sooner because if they're going to try to target rates, they have to print more and more money to do that. And as they do that, they put more and more downward pressure on the dollar, which in turn puts upward pressure on rates, which means they have to print even more money to constrain that upward pressure, which puts even more downward pressure on the dollar until you end up with a crisis. And that, unfortunately, is exactly where we're headed. Now, of course, there are a lot of people who think that the way to protect themselves from the dollar crisis is with cryptocurrencies, right, is with Bitcoin. Well, I think that one of the many bubbles that could pop in 2018 is the Bitcoin bubble or maybe more broadly the, the crypto bubble. You know, we did get down uh, on Bitcoin back down, I think, 
uh, below 13,000, certainly, uh, over the weekend. And then yesterday morning, and I think we were, you know, yesterday morning we were even below, I think we were in a high 1200s on Bitcoin. And it soared all the way up above 15,000, simply on the announcement that Peter Thiel had made a large bet on Bitcoin, maybe 20 or $30 million bet in some of the funds that he controlled. And from what I read, the bet was made last year, the middle of last year. So I'm not really sure where along the way he bought, because obviously Bitcoin rose from about 1000 in the beginning of the year to 20000 right, towards the end of the year before settling back down at about 14000 So somewhere along the way, Peter Thiel was making a big bet. Now, part of the reason that we could have seen this big uptick in Bitcoin was Thiel's money coming in. I mean, that's part of it, right? Some of these hedge funds coming in. But the market reacted to this announcement as if this is great news for Bitcoin. Hey, look, Peter Thiel's got this huge position in Bitcoin. You know, this validates Bitcoin. I mean, to me, if Peter Thiel is making it known that he has a big position in Bitcoin, it's because it's not going to get any bigger, right? He doesn't want to buy anymore because if he did want to buy anymore, he would keep his mouth shut, right? He would want the price to be as low as possible. So if you've taken a big position in a a market that's relatively thin, which Bitcoin is, you're not going to let it be known that you have a position until you've accumulated everything that you want. Now, the question is, is he, does he want to sell? I mean, is he announcing it because he's hoping to get the price up so he can take some profits? I don't know where he's in, right? I don't know, you know how early in the year did he buy and does he want to get out now? And is that why he's letting people know that he owns it? Because he knows that that'll create some buying that he can sell into? Or is he hoping to sell at a later date at a higher price, but is hoping that the announcement that he has a position will help encourage other people to buy to cause the price to go up to enable him to cash out at a higher price? But, you know, the fact that Peter Thiel is a buyer should not be a big surprise. I mean, he is one of the few real libertarian, uh, you know, hedge fund guys, right? Uh, billionaires. I mean, how many libertarian billionaires are out there, right? There's not that many, and certainly in the investment arena. And the guy got his start, really, with PayPal. I mean, so he's a libertarian uh, from PayPal. I mean, cryptocurrencies, I mean, if Thiel didn't get it, nobody would, right? I mean, this is the one guy. Of all the big hedge fund guys that are out there, wealthy guys from Silicon Valley or Wall Street, of all the guys that you would think may be interested in Bitcoin, he's the guy, right? So, I mean, if Warren Buffett had come out and said, oh, I I, I just made a huge bet on Bitcoin, that might be big news because that would be, oh, my God, here's a mainstream guy who was real negative on Bitcoin. Oh, my, maybe this, this is big news. I mean, because if Warren could buy, I mean, think about all the other people. But when it's Peter Thiel, right, that doesn't necessarily mean that everybody else is going to, you know, fall into place. I mean, all the libertarians who like cryptocurrencies, they already bought, right? So what would be big news would be somebody outside of that small niche uh, were deciding to buy in. But the fact that his ownership was disclosed to me was not a big bullish sign. And that's how the market took it because we had a huge rally. But what's interesting to me is we didn't make new highs. We didn't, we didn't get back up to 20,000. The market ran out of steam you know, above 15,000, which is kind of where we've been seeing a lot of resistance ever since the initial drop from 20,000 
down to about 11,000. We've been trading mainly between 12,000, 15,000. So that's the trading range that we've been in and we haven't been able to break through it. Now, maybe we will. Maybe we will break through it and maybe we'll go revisit those highs or take them out. Or maybe we're in the process of forming a head and shoulders at top and we're just on uh, the right shoulder now. And, you know, the neckline is maybe around 11,000 or wherever it's going to be. But um, the, the fact that we didn't make a new high on the Peter Thiel announcement uh, should be disturbing potentially for so many people who think this is it. This is the big validation. The fact that they uh, they got Peter Thiel in there. You know, also, I think people have to put this 20 to 30 million dollar number in perspective, you know, because for most people you hear, oh, a 20 to 30 million dollar bet. Oh, yeah, that's a huge bet. That's a large bet. Not for Peter Thiel. I mean, the guy's worth over two billion dollars. So even if he put 20 million dollars into Bitcoin, that's one percent of his net worth. That doesn't sound like he's really convinced uh, that this is a great investment. It seems like he might be buying it for the, well, I better hedge myself because in case this thing really does go up, I better throw 1% of my net worth. That's what a lot of the, 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 you know, the impetus has been, the fear of missing out. I've heard a lot of people say, look, you know, you can't afford not to have at least something in Bitcoin. You got to at least throw maybe 1% of your net worth in just in case, just in case it goes to a million or 2 million, right? You have to have a little bit there. Otherwise you're broke. Right. If you're if if Bitcoin takes off and becomes, you know, a million dollars a coin, if you don't own it, you're poor because all of your purchasing power gets transferred to all the people who are smart enough to get in. So that's part of the, the what's fueling the bubble is that you got to buy because, you know, it's like a lottery ticket. If it pays off, it's it's such an enormous amount above what you bet. The odds are so huge. Either you lose or you make a fortune. Right. There's a big payoff. Or you lose. So, you know, throw 1% of your net worth into Bitcoin. And of course, if everybody does that, that really pushes up the price. And so maybe that's what Peter Thiel is doing. And of course, he's doing this in a fund that he controls. So even if it's 20 or $30 million, it's not necessarily 20 or $30 million of Peter Thiel's money. Some of that might be his money, but a lot of it could be other people's money. So the actual bet that he's making personally could be a lot smaller than 1% of his net worth. So keep that in perspective when you're trying to read too much into a 20 or $30 million investment by a billionaire. But, you know, I'm still getting clients. I had, I think I had a client today that wanted to take uh, a $200,000, uh, his entire IRA, and put it in Bitcoin. So this kind of stuff is going on. Uh, and, you know, I'm seeing it with my clients. And, and that's despite the fact that, you know, I've expressed you know, my my uh, serious doubts about the long-term viability. Yet despite that, you've got, you know, clients of mine uh, putting that kind of money into Bitcoin at these prices. So obviously, you know, this stuff is going on. But the, this, despite the fact that you're getting this type of investment, we're not making new highs. So somebody is selling, right? Because otherwise the prices would be making new highs. And the fact that they're not is a very good indication uh, that we, we might have seen the top, especially if the gold market breaks out. We haven't done that yet, right? Gold now, you know, we're around 1315, 1320 on the price of gold. Uh, but we really break out. And I, I mean, you know, 1400, you know, we need to get above there. We need to start putting some distance between the price of gold and, and, and this, uh, and this range that we've been trading in. But I think once we do that, you know, it's Katie bar the door. I mean, gold's going to have a big, big move up. 
And that is going to awaken a lot of money that has been on the sidelines or has been in cryptocurrencies. And it's going to come back to gold. And it's going to come back to gold in a big way. And not just gold, in silver too. You know, I mean, look look at the move that we saw last year in palladium, right? I mean, huge move up in palladium. So you can have these kind of moves in metals. People have been uh, not thinking about it because they've been confident in the stock market. They've had the story wrong. Oh, there's no inflation. The Fed did everything right. Everything's perfect. Yep, yep. Uh, Art Laffer is right, right? But when people start to realize that this is, we're in a worse situation than we were before 2008, but we're back to the bubble or the movement up in commodities. Remember, oil prices moved up. While the Fed had printed all that money, oil prices went from $20 a barrel to 146 Right, We could have a bigger move this time in oil, a bigger move in commodities, a bigger move in gold. Do you know how much money the central banks have created since the early 2000s? I mean, all that money, all that quantitative easing, that money is all there. It's amazing to me that prices have stayed this low for this long. Well, we're about to blow the lid off, right? We're about to see all that inflation manifest itself, right? It's it's ha- Everybody's happy when inflation pushes up stock prices or pushes up real estate prices or pushes up bond prices, but eventually it pushes up consumer prices. It pushes up producer prices. That's what we're seeing. We're seeing the very beginning of that happening now. And so when that really starts to go up, I mean, we can see a big drop in a lot of these assets that have been propped up by all this hype, including the cryptocurrencies, and we can see a big rush of money into commodities, into real things, into tangible things, not just bits, you know, X's and O's or numbers on a computer screen, but people try to buy real things, real gold, real silver, real energy, or real assets. People start investing in uh, these commodity-based countries that have been ignored because everybody thought, oh, this is going to last forever. We're going to have cheap oil forever, cheap commodities, low inflation, yet we're going to have all these low interest rates it's the, the ultimate Goldilocks. Remember, that's what everybody was talking about in 2004, 2005, 2006. The Goldilocks economy, it was perfect. It wasn't too hot. It wasn't too cold. Everything was going to be great. That's why Art Laffer and all his buddies were so happy and so excited because nothing can go wrong in this Goldilocks era. Well, the Goldilocks economy that we have experienced uh, recently, what we experienced under uh, under Obama and what everybody believes we're experiencing now. This is even a bigger fairy tale than it was then. And this time when those three little bears uh, come home, uh, they're, they're just not going to, you know, scare Goldilocks out of the house. They're, they're, they're going to devour her completely. And anybody who's still in this house, anybody uh, who thinks they're living in a fairy tale, they're going to wake up and discover that it is a nightmare. Also, we've got some big economic numbers coming out Thursday and Friday. In particular, we get the non-farm payroll number for December, the final month of 2017. They're looking for 190,000 jobs. 228 was the report for November. That's the the number we got last month. So we'll see what happens. Uh, They're looking again for 4.1% unemployment. Uh, So it'll be interesting to see how the markets react particularly if we actually get a weak non-farm payroll number. I have no idea if that's going to happen. I'm probably more likely that we'll get another strong one. I'm not sure when we're going to start to see 
the weaker numbers probably sometime this year. We're going to see uh, some weaker numbers. We're going to see an uptick in the unemployment rate. I don't know if we're going to see it yet, but it'll be interesting to see how the markets react. What I do think we're going to see a jump in is the trade deficit. We get the trade deficit for November. That's going to come out on Friday, too. The consensus is for $50 billion even. We did $48.7 billion the prior month, which was much higher than expected. I wouldn't be surprised if we're well north of $50 billion. I think these trade deficits are on autopilot higher. It's going to be an embarrassment for Trump because he campaigned on lowering the trade deficits, and instead they're exploding. But it's also going to weigh heavily on the dollar, which is going to be part of the problem for the U.S. economy. But again, part of my investment thesis that I think is going to be driving staggering returns that I think we will enjoy uh, in 2018 and beyond as the air comes out of this dollar bubble. <music>